can turn with me to Luke 22. Luke 22. About 480 years before this event that we're about to read, a vast Persian army invaded Greece. And near a town called Thermopylae, a small force of Greeks took a stand between a steep hillside and the ocean. It was a narrow pass, and so this huge Persian army could only get through a few at a time. And so while the Greeks were a much smaller force, they were able to hold the Persian army at bay for two days. But after those two days, a Greek who wanted some money sneaked around to the Persian side, and he showed the Persians a path that went up over the cliff and around the pass. An insider betrayed his own people, and the Persian army swept through Greece. Nearly 500 years later, another insider betrayed his own. Let's read Luke 22 together. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table." 
For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is God's word for us today. I'm encouraged by how God brings things together. Uh, This Sunday and next, we're going to look at the two ordinances which Jesus gave to his church. Today, we talk about the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. And next Sunday, I'm going to pause our Luke series for a week, and we're going to talk about baptism because we have the opportunity to baptize two sisters and to bring them into our church fellowship. So, I'm excited for these two weeks and how they hold hands together. But today we're looking at the Lord's Supper. And there are three time stamps through this text. And they're going to give us our our headers for the section. Plots, preparations, and something brand new. You were waiting for a third P, weren't you? Hey, if it doesn't come... I'm not going to force it. I thought about Passover, and there's a good reason to do Passover. But this is a whole lot bigger than Passover, as we will see. So, plots, preparations, and something brand new. First, verses 1 through 6. Before the Passover, before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there are plots. And Luke shows us, as he leads into this scene, that there is an unholy alliance that's going on here. Three groups or parties have joined together for a dastardly purpose. The first group, verses 1 and 2, the religious leaders are seeking to put Jesus to death. And that doesn't really surprise us because over the months that we've been in Luke, we've seen these religious leaders trying to oppose Jesus, even threatening Jesus, and thinking about killing Jesus for some time. So this is no news. But they've had a problem because, as we saw at the end of Luke 21, Jesus has been going to the temple each day to teach, but then he goes out of the city at night to the Mount of Olives. This is the time of Passover when all these pilgrims are inundating the city of Jerusalem And so it is packed. There's no place for a lot of people to stay. And so Jesus and his followers go out on the mount to camp out or maybe to stay in the town of Bethany with friends as it sits on the Mount of Olives. But these religious leaders can't find a time to catch him. They're not going to do it when the crowd is around him because they're scared of the people. And then in the evening, when the crowd disperses, Jesus disappears. They can't find him. So how are they going to make this work? Enter the second party. Verse 3. Then Satan. Wow. We would never have known this if Luke had not told us. There's a whole lot more going on in this scene than initially meets human eyes. Luke gives us insight into this plot about Jesus. And we have seen people throughout Luke's gospel who have been controlled or possessed by demons. 
But now, the great adversary himself steps in. He's not leaving this job to demons of lower rank. He's going to make sure it gets done. And friends, let me say this, that in our secular age, many people have forgotten, and it is easy for us to forget, that there is an unseen world at work. We cannot forget it. And it's interesting to me that in our culture, which is so enamored with science and tangible things and things that we can measure, that supernatural stuff has been relegated to the realm of fairy tales, entertainment, movies. It's just that fake stuff that we just like to be titillated with or entertained by. But it's real. And Paul tells us when he talked to the Ephesian Christians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our primary enemies are not the people who are around us or the people who are in our country or across the world. Our primary enemies are the invisible forces and the powers in heavenly places. And if there was not a stronger one than them, we would have no hope. Satan steps in. He is God's enemy. He has been God's enemy from the beginning, and therefore he is our enemy. He has been set against God's people, and he keeps unbelievers in darkness and in blindness. He enters Judas. And there's your third party in this unholy alliance. Verses 4 through 6, Judas approaches the religious leaders and offers them an idea. And wow, they could not have had a greater opportunity fall into their laps. They are strategizing, trying to find a way to capture this teacher, and then one of his followers knocks on the door and says, I can give him to you. Oh, we can't get any better than this. An insider is just going to take us right to him. But there's still this trouble of the crowd. How do we get him apart from a crowd? Now, betrayal is a revolting thing to us as humans. There's something inside of us that is just repelled by the fact that an insider would give up or turn over someone of their own. But Judas's betrayal has come to be viewed as history's worst example. And why is that? Well, for one thing, look down toward the end of our section at verse 21. Jesus says, The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus' own friend who is eating with him, who makes it look like he's close to him, his own friend is going to betray him. But it's also the worst betrayal in history because of who is being betrayed. Look at verse 22. Jesus says next, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas is not merely betraying one of his friends. He is turning over God's very king. We've seen the Son of Man in past weeks is that title for God's king. This is who Judas is giving up. And he is one of the very 12 who have surrounded Jesus. 
Jesus says that this betrayal has been determined. From before time began, the sovereign God had a plan of how he would redeem humans. And this betrayal is all part of that destined plan. And yet, the betrayer, Judas, is held responsible. Jesus says, woe to him for what he is doing. And as we've seen through Luke, once again, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans hold hands, even in the worst betrayal of history. Judas is one of the 12. And and think about this for a moment. What did he do and what did he see? He lived with Jesus for two plus years. He heard Jesus teaching. He saw Jesus' miracles. He walked with Jesus and ate with Jesus. He saw him and observed him in every type of setting of human life. And then Judas himself even went out, sent by Jesus, to proclaim the good news of who this Messiah was. Judas himself went out and through the power of Jesus given to him, he did miracles. And yet he's going to turn and hand over his master to the authorities. How does someone get to this point? Let me offer you a few thoughts on betrayal. I think first it begins with a failure to know Jesus, to truly know him. Yes, Judas knew Jesus in some sense. He could describe his habits. He could tell you where he went and how often and who his friends were and what he said and what he taught. But he had not been changed by Jesus. And we don't actually know why Judas decided to betray Jesus. Obviously, he wanted money. But was there more than that? Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us. But it's obvious he did not know this one whom he was following. And so if you don't know someone, what does that lead to? Betrayal is deepened when you do not treasure Jesus. If you don't know someone, you can't value them. You can't consider them as more significant than something else. And so Judas is willing to give up his master for 30 pieces of silver. So if you don't know someone, you're not going to treasure them, which leads to a third step, which is that you actually treasure other things more than them. And we see that in Judas, valuing money more than the king. And if you value other things more than Jesus, there's a short step to surrendering Jesus. If you don't know him, you won't treasure him. If you don't treasure him, you will value other things above him. And if you value other things above him, you will be willing to give him up. And friends, I will say to us here, let us beware. I've been sobered by this this week. That one of those closest to Jesus, one of those who looked the part, one of those who said all the right things, And did a lot of the right stuff. That very one betrayed his Lord. It is a fearful thing 
that someone sitting right here could turn their back on Jesus and surrender him. It's a fearful thing that someone who right now is serving in Jesus' name, speaking in Jesus' name, would turn their back on him. So I urge you to search your hearts and to see if you truly treasure Jesus. Do not remain comfortable with a surface look of serving him, of knowing him, of talking about him. Do you treasure him above all else? If not, then you are in a dangerous place. You too might betray Jesus. While these plots are being devised, preparations are also being made. So we move to our second header, verses 7 through 13, when the day of unleavened bread comes. Jesus' disciples get ready to eat. Once again, we got another meal in Luke, but this one has some incredible significance. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now in Luke's gospel, he mentions the Passover seven times. Six of those times occur in this text right here. That should tell us something. He also mentions the Feast of Unleavened Bread two times in this text, and he doesn't mention it anywhere else. So what is Luke doing? He's highlighting something. He's emphasizing something. He's emphasizing the Passover. And what is that? Well, let's review. Go back with me to Exodus 12. The second book of your Bibles, Exodus chapter 12. This chapter comes after God has rained down nine catastrophic plagues on Egypt. And it comes right before the final, the tenth plague is about to fall. God gets his people ready for the plague and he gets them ready to get out of Egypt. Exodus 12, look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. All right, guys, Israel, something so important is about to happen that this month is going to be the beginning of your calendar from here on out. It's your January. The calendar starts over right now because this is so significant. Verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until when? Until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. All right, so what's going on? God tells his people, I want every household, every family to choose a lamb, and you're going to slaughter it at twilight of this particular day. Why in the world are we going to do that? Verse 7. Then shall they take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Okay, 
So you're going to take the blood from the lamb that you slaughter, put it on the doorposts. That's going to keep the destroying angel from killing your firstborn when he comes through Egypt for this 10th plague. But then you're going to take the body of the, of the lamb, you're going to roast it, and you're going to eat it. And how are you going to eat it? Look down at verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. Why you got to do that? Get your suitcase ready, have it by your chair, and eat it really fast. Why? Because as soon as I pass through the land of Egypt, you're getting out. You got to be ready to move. Load up the carts, we're going. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat the unleavened bread. Ah, so here we go. Passover is the day on which the lamb is slaughtered, but then you have seven more days. You've got another week where you're continuing to feast, and that's the feast of unleavened bread. So Passover is the day that starts the week of feasting. So Passover and unleavened bread hold hands. They go together. They're basically interchangeable. All right, verse 24, almost done. You shall observe this rite, this feast, this meal as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. Now listen to this. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why are we doing this meal? Why is this so, so important? Verse 27, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So what is God doing? He's telling his people, I'm giving you a meal. And you're going to celebrate this meal every year. For as long as you're a nation. And when your family celebrate this meal, every generation, every dad is going to tell his kids, here's why we're eating this. Because a long time ago, God brought our people out of slavery. And he told us to eat this meal because this lamb, its blood saved us from being destroyed. And then we eat this meal to remember what God's done for our people. Now we know what this is like, right? Every culture has stuff like this. Think of July 4th. Why do we get together and celebrate and eat food on July 4th? Because we are remembering what happened more than 200 years ago in our country where you had the 13 American colonies declare independence from Great Britain and say that they were their own nation. So every year on July 4th, we get together we put food in our mouths, we pour drink down our throats, and we set off fireworks. Why? Because we are remembering something which happened a long time ago. So let's review some key facts about the Passover. One, who's it for? Israel, the people of God. And if you were to read further into Exodus, it's only for Israel. So if there's a foreigner who's become a part of God's people, they want to become a Jew, 
They have to get circumcised and basically become a Jew in order to be a part of this meal. It's for Israel and only Israel. Okay, it's for Israel. Two, when did it take place? The night before a great deliverance. Third, what's the purpose? To remember what God did to rescue us. So hold all those thoughts in mind. This Passover meal, back to Luke 22, this Passover is what Jesus sends Peter and John to get ready. Now, you can see from the instructions that he gives to them in verses 7 through 13, his instructions sound really familiar to what he told his two disciples in Luke 19 when he told them to go get a colt. Basically, he says, go here, you're going to see this, and then you're going to have to say that. That's what he told them with the colt, and now that's what he tells Peter and John when they go into the city to find this room where they're going to have the Passover. So, is Jesus using supernatural knowledge? Like, there's going to be this guy carrying this water pitcher, and you're going to come in just at the same time, and then he's going to take you to this room. Is it supernatural knowledge, or did he make arrangements ahead of time? We don't know for sure, but think about this. All right, this is a big holiday. The city is packed. If you're waiting until the last minute to try to find a place to celebrate, are you going to find a place? Probably not. So Jesus most likely made some arrangements ahead of time for a particular room where he and his disciples would celebrate Passover. So then, why did his disciples not know where it was? Well, maybe Jesus knew that one of his men was trying to betray him. And he didn't want to give away a location where Judas could just lead the soldiers right to him. Jesus, after all, as we've seen through Luke, is going to die, but he's going to do it on his own time frame. So he tells Peter and John, go and get this room ready for us. Jesus is getting ready to die. And I don't think it's an accident that in these verses, verses 7 through 13, Luke uses the word prepare four times, which highlights that as Peter and John are preparing the lamb and the meal, the unholy alliance are preparing to sacrifice the lamb. So, plots have taken place, preparations have occurred, and now we come to our last header. The hour has come for the meal. Jesus uses something from Israel's history, something that's old, a table that people have enjoyed for centuries. But he comes to this table and he creates something brand new. Look down at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table. Well, initially that sounds like a pretty normal Passover. The lamb or the goat has been slaughtered at twilight. It's been, got, it's been prepared and now it's time for the evening meal. And there are even multiple cups that Luke talks about in this scene. Now, don't let that confuse you or throw you off. Because actually, in the course of a Passover, there typically were four cups that were used for different reasons. Now, most of the gospel writers just mention one. 
Luke mentions two, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but don't get hung up on that. What is emphasized, though, at this table? You would think at a Passover that the lamb would be highlighted because it is the centerpiece of the table. Its blood was on the doorposts. It was a reminder of God's protection from death. It was a reminder of God's deliverance from Egypt. But is the lamb even mentioned in this scene at the table? No. Why is that? I think it may be because the lamb is sitting at the table. The emphasis is on him, as we'll see. So instead of emphasizing the Passover scene, Jesus takes a couple of familiar items and starts to emphasize something new. The bread and the cup. So first, the bread. Verse 19. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he tore it. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. So Jesus takes the bread, he rips off pieces, and he passes them around the table to his men. And he says, this bread is my body. Okay, what does he mean? Well, he's not saying that the bread has somehow magically transformed into his body because his physical body is there and he's holding the bread. So, the bread is representing his body which will shortly be offered for them. And they take these pieces of bread, put them in their mouths, chew them up, and swallow them. Why? What does he say next in verse 19? Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus has just changed everything. Because when people sat down at the Passover meal, what were they remembering? They were remembering God's deliverance through lambs centuries before. Now Jesus says, no longer will you come to this meal and remember that. Now you're going to come to this meal and remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. And why? Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he gives the bread so that they will tear it and eat it and remember his body offered for them. But then he offers a cup. And again, Luke mentions two cups. And so these two cups are going to give us the next two new things. We've seen a new meal first. What's the second new thing that Jesus gives? Well, look down at this first cup in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Now, it's so easy to read right over that because we're familiar with it. But what did we just observe about the Passover? Who observes the Passover together? Biological families, households. So why is Jesus celebrating with his apostles? Why is he not with his mom, Mary, and with other biological relatives? Because Jesus is beginning a new family. He's beginning a new people. Those 
who will come to him because of his sacrifice on their behalf. So Jesus is forming a new people, a people which begins with these men around his table, but which will be founded on these men and which will far outlast these men. It's a new family, a new people. And I love how he describes different things here. This new family is made up of those whom Jesus draws together. Why do I say that? Look at verse 17. This first cup, he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. So picture these guys. He passes it. They take a drink and pass it again and take a drink and pass it again and take a drink. What's the point? This first cup is the unifier. It shows that they are sharing together because they are sharing around Jesus. Let me use this illustration. So elementary kids, science. You know that the sun is the center of our solar system and everything rotates, revolves around that. Why is that? Because the sun is the center of gravity of our solar system. It's the largest body and it exerts the strongest force to hold the planets and the moons and the asteroids and everything together. So the sun is exerting this force on everything around it so that the planets keep going around it. The sun is the center of gravity for our solar system. What's the point? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the center of gravity for our church and for the people of God. He is the one who holds us together and around whom we revolve and rotate. What happens if the sun were to disappear, just vanish from our solar system? All the planets and the bodies in space of our solar system begin to just separate and float out. And eventually, they start to collide with each other. So if Jesus is not the center of gravity for his people, if something else is, we're either going to implode or we're going to fly apart and crash into each other. Jesus must be the center for our church. He must be the one who holds us together. So what does this mean practically? What do you talk about when you get together with brothers and sisters? What makes up your conversations with each other? Now, I'm not saying that because we share life together in the church means that we always have to talk about Jesus and can never talk about anything else. So don't hear me saying that. But what I am saying is, what pulls you toward other people in our church? And what holds you together with other people in our church? The normal things which hold people together were not what bound these 11 apostles, these 12 apostles around Jesus. The normal things did not pull them together because these were wildly different men that he had united around himself. So sharing life with Jesus means that our life together as a church should be bound up in talking about him, what he's doing in us, what he's doing in each other, and what he's doing in the world. 
That's what should hold us together as a church. And if anything else holds us together, it's going to create division. It's going to create implosion. It's going to create all sorts of bad effects. He must be at the center. So this new family, this new people, are those whom Jesus draws together. And they're also those whom Jesus loves. Look down at verse 15. Did you notice his first words to his apostles? I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Friends, Jesus wanted to eat with his men. Now, should that surprise us? In some sense, it should, because what do we know about these guys? They were divisive, they were argumentative, they were dull, they were naive, they didn't get stuff, and yet Jesus says, I have so looked forward to eating with you. And I love that this is such a truth in Scripture. It's a basic truth, and yet a truth that we so easily forget. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. And it's not just little ones like children. It's the insignificant. It's the small. It's those who don't matter in the world's eyes. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. It's such a foundational truth. And yet we so easily forget it. And we feel like, how could Jesus love me? Why would Jesus want to be with me? Why would he want to eat with me? But friends, Jesus longs to eat with his people. And that should be joy for our souls. So Jesus draws a new family together. He loves these people that he has drawn and they are the ones that he wants with him. Why do I say that? Look at verse 16. He says, I tell you, I will not eat this meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18. From now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Why does Jesus say that? Why is he not going to eat this meal this specific meal, why is he not going to eat it again until he returns and brings his kingdom? Why is he going to abstain from drinking the cup at this meal until he returns and brings his kingdom? Why? Because only when the kingdom comes will his whole family be together. Right now, Jesus' family isn't complete yet. There are still some who haven't believed in Him. There are still some that haven't been drawn into His family yet. He hasn't returned. He hasn't brought His kingdom. And so, He's waiting. And I love this. I just saw this this week for the first time. He eats this meal at the bookends of His redemptive work. 
of his saving work, he eats with the very first group of his followers, his 11 disciples who believe in him, and then he doesn't eat this meal again until the very end when we're all together around the table. So what is he doing right now? He's fasting. He's waiting because he wants to eat with us. Because he wants to eat with his people. And so he gives us this table that we enjoy on a regular basis. He gives it to us because we so easily forget and we need stuff to put in our mouths and drink to put down our throats so we remember that the real thing is coming. And yet he waits and he fasts and he abstains because he is looking forward to the day when we are all together with him. He's made a new family. Third new thing that he has made. He pulls out the second cup after they have eaten. Verse 20. Likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's given a new deliverance. What is this new covenant and what makes it new? Let's go back briefly and look with me at Exodus 24 because we want to look at a covenant that he has given to his people Israel. Exodus 24, we'll look at a couple of verses there. Now, if you have been familiar with the Bible for any amount of time, you probably know that God has been making covenants with people all through human history. You have a covenant with Adam at the very beginning that he is the one who's supposed to rule over the earth. He is God's ruler. Humans are God's rulers over the earth. You've got a covenant with Noah that God's never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. You've got a covenant with Abraham that God is going to make a great family from his people and bless the whole world through his family. You've got a covenant with, with Israel through Moses. We're going to look at that in just a minute. And you've got a covenant with David that God is going to bring a king from Israel. So these covenants are like the backbone of the Bible. They hold it all together. So let's look at one of these, Exodus 24, and see what God says to his people Israel. Exodus 24, verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. What are the words he's writing down? What happened right before this? Exodus 20, God thunders out the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And you know what? We people forget. So Moses writes them down in a book. Verse, back down to verse 4. He wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Listen to this. Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, and the other half he threw against the altar. Why in the world did he do that? We'll come to that in just a minute. And he said, all that the Lord has spoken, yeah, sorry, verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant, what he wrote down, God's words, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people 
and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. What's happening? God speaks words to his people Israel. He makes promises to them. They respond by making promises to God. And God says, all right, we're going to seal this covenant with blood. So Moses takes blood and he throws it on the altar, which is like throwing the blood on God, one of the parties in this covenant. Then he takes blood and he throws it on the people. So you've got God and the people, the two parties in the covenant, they've made promises to each other and the blood has been sprinkled on both of them. The covenant has been sealed. But there's a problem. Because do the people of Israel keep their promise? Do they obey God? Nope. And they fail miserably for century after century. Turn to Jeremiah 31 and we'll end with this. Jeremiah 31, centuries later, God comes to his people and speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This new covenant, verse 32, will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put, what's new about it? I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall they teach each other, each his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Come on. Come know God. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here's a covenant that God makes with his people Israel. And it's signed and sealed in blood. He says, you will be my people if you obey me. And they say, we will obey you. And then they fail and fail and fail. And God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And this time, I'm not going to write my law on stone tablets and force it on you from the outside. This time, I'm going to change you from the inside out. And I'm going to write my law on your hearts so that you can obey me. And there will come one who will sign this covenant in his blood and he will obey me perfectly so that if you are found in him and if you are covered in his blood, you are forgiven. That's the new covenant. So when Jesus holds up this cup with his men around the table and says, this is the new covenant in my blood, he's saying, the new thing starts now. I'm going to the cross, I'm going to pour out my blood, and it will be sprinkled on you who believe in me. And if it's sprinkled on you, and you're found in me, you are part of the new covenant. And you can obey God. And you can be forgiven, because you're under my blood. So friends, today, we are part of something brand new. Something that Jesus has been doing, drawing a new people together with a new deliverance and a new covenant. And he gives us a new meal so that we'll remember it over and over and over again. 
Because Jesus longs to eat with his people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the work that you have done to draw people to your Son and to make us new in Him. And I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of what you have done for us and how you have made us yours. And so help us to be a people who are unified around Jesus as the one who has drawn us together. Give us hearts which love Him above everything else and which love each other because we've been drawn together in Him. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.